have to switch mics and make sure we have our technology in order. <clears throat> as, um, as Gary led us in prayer, I, I just kept thinking about how much pain there is in this world that we're dealing with. And some of the uh, requests that were mentioned to me privately aside from our list and the hurting people that we're dealing with and the confusion that we're facing in our world. We have a society that is upside down. We don't know, we don't know which way is up. And we're confused about what is right and we're confused about what is significant and meaningful. We're confused about who we are and who we're supposed to be and what all that means. And as we're looking at this account in the book of Luke, that Luke has written specifically to help us, as he writes to Theophilus with the intention of this being circulated among the churches, he's writing for all of us to be able to know the certainty of what we've been taught. That's a really crucial thing for us. And I think, I, I fear, I, I'm, I fear confidently, is that an okay thing to say? I'm very confident about the reality of this, and it troubles me greatly that the biggest problem that we face in our world today is that the church is too weak, too shallow, and too much like the world because we don't know the difference between reality and perception. We have not spent enough time actually getting to know the God we profess to believe. So we don't study His Word. We don't gather with His people. We don't sing songs of meaning and depth because it's not convenient for us. Because the devil really works hard to keep us shallow. You see, if we don't have roots, it's easy for us to get tossed around. If, it's, if we don't have roots that can dig in and hold on to something more solid than our feelings, then when things get rough, when things get confusing and dark and lonely and hopeless, then our supposed faith can get uprooted very quickly. Because we haven't dug in. We say we believe, but we don't know what we believe. We say we believe, but not only do we not know what, we don't know why. Jesus, in dealing with these religious leaders, even though they're trying to trap him, they're trying to trick him, Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. And so we see in this entire section that we've been looking at in, in the latter portion of chapter 20 into chapter 21, this delineation between perception and reality, between what seems real and what actually is real. That's where Jesus takes us in the midst of this. So as we read this text and we begin to take a look at what Luke has to say to us today, Luke's not writing it to us, but we can glean from this the principles, the truths that Jesus was communicating at the time, 
that Luke was communicating to his readers that God wants all believers in his church to know. We can see all of this together as we read from Luke chapter 20. So if you haven't turned there already, since that's where we're going, I'm going to invite you now to turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 20, we've been dealing with these kingdom concepts. Jesus has talked a lot about the coming kingdom of God. He's talked about the presence of the kingdom of God, that it's begun with His his presence, His earthly ministry. And the rest of the New Testament will be written to us as God's ambassadors here in this present dark world as representatives and citizens of the kingdom of light. The religious leaders who hold some authority in the world and claim to hold authority representing God, but maybe aren't wielding that very well, they're resisting what Jesus is bringing. And he's dealt with this kingdom idea. He's dealt with authority pretty specifically. But now in these trap questions, if we can call them that, as we work work through 20, he gets to another group. The Pharisees and the scribes have been coming to him. They're they're the more conservative religious leaders. Now they've at least momentarily given up. He shut down their arguments. And the Sadducees come. The Sadducees are the more liberal side. So he's getting it from all sides here. The Sadducees don't believe in supernatural things. They take the first five books of the the Bible, the first... uh, books of Moses, what the Hebrews would call the Torah, and they take that very literally. But they wipe out anything about angels or God's intervention. I don't know how you read it that way, but that's what they do. It's equivalent to our modern liberal theology, where we discount the Bible as something that is fallible and authoritative and inspired by God. That's where the Sadducees are coming from. They didn't even regard the rest of the Old Testament as Scripture. They didn't regard the oral traditions as authoritative. They didn't regard the word of the prophets, only the first five books, and only in a literal, rationalized sense. With that as a background, let's begin reading with verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one, doesn't it just feel like a trick question already, just the way they say it? Sorry for interrupting the reading. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come 
and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be most severely punished. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Sometimes we take it for granted, but we are as sinful and short-sighted people, so unworthy of even holding this book. And yet you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And you have given us your spirit to be able to understand and interpret your word. Father, this is grace upon grace. Help us to see it that way. Help us to appreciate, to be eternally, desperately thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Father, more than just reading and knowing, you've called us to be transformed by it. So we come now to worship you, to glorify you, to hold you up in the spotlight that people can see you for who you are. And that starts, Lord, with us seeing you for who you are. So we pray not just for education, but for transformation. We pray that you would make your word live to us. Help us to get it. And Father, help us to surrender to it. Readjust the way we think, the way we see life, that we might embrace real life in Christ. In his name we pray this. Amen. So as we see the Sadducees here, there, there's background that, that is fun to look at, but I don't know that it helps us in our particular point. They're, uh, they are the predominant party among the priests, among the high priests, and they come from the line of Zadok, and that the derivative word uh, Sadducees comes from that name. And they appear to have started during the Hasmonean period of, of the history of Israel. None of which you really care about, right? 
what we need to understand about them is that they reject anything that smacks of the supernatural. That which is miraculous must not be so. In our world, that's a pretty common thing. I need to prove it by science. I need to see it by science. If I can't do it in a laboratory, it must not be right. The problem is, on a lot of levels, we don't accept the science. Because if the science points to a creator, to an intelligent designer, why don't we throw away the evidence and come up with a new conclusion? If, for those of you, I, I know Dave and Brenda recently were at uh, Creation Museum. I think the young Myers family is down there right now. Uh, if you've been down there and you've been able to see it, one of the first things you see when you walk into Creation Mu Museum is a display or a room that shows two scientists seeing the same evidence. The difference between their conclusions is their starting point. What did they expect in the first place? Everyone starts with a starting point. Everyone has preconceived notions. There is no such thing as a perfectly objective human being. It's a matter of whether you're willing to acknowledge that and submit that to the evidence. So with that in mind, when we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're coming from different perspectives. They're both considered Jews, and they're both in the religious hierarchy. In fact, the Sadducees are very, very devoted to the perfection of the religion, but they've taken all the power out of it. They've taken the power of God out of their religion by stripping it of anything that is beyond human understanding. The Pharisees are a little different. They're spiritual, they're conservative, they're very concerned, maybe you don't realize this, the Pharisees are very concerned with equality, with equitable living and justice among the people. More, much more so than the Sadducees. Although, all of them end up missing the boat because they rely on their own understanding, their own strength, rather than trusting what God is putting in front of them. That is, that's the battle we're in today. It's the battle we're in in churches today. Some of the most religious people I know, and I'm sure some of the most religious people that you know, have either put their own laws, their own religious rules ahead of what the Scripture says. We call that going above the line in our, in our Wednesday night study. Or they have decided to take away anything that doesn't make sense to them. They're very religious, but very worldly, and that's falling below the line, if the line is what the text of Scripture actually tells us. So here in, in Luke 20, we're seeing this, I would call it a debate, but it's really not a debate. It's just a trap. And the Sadducees come with their super profound, highly intellectual question. Their goal is to make Jesus or anybody else who wants to embrace the supernatural resurrection of the physical resurrection of the dead in the last day look like idiots. They want to make them look ridiculous. So they pose the question in a way that is so exaggerated it's beyond anything that, that would be normal. This scenario, is it possible that a woman married seven brothers to be able to finally have a child and never does? Sure, it's possible. Not very likely, but it's, it's possible. The math works. It could happen. Is the law covering that? Yes, of course, it covers that. 
Their point is, we're going to come up with a ridiculous, preposterous question so that whatever answer you give, you look stupid. Now, here's the other thing. This, just like they tried to use the taxes being paid to Caesar in the previous uh, passage to get Jesus uh, stuck between the Roman authorities and the Jewish people, particularly the Sicarii, the Zealots, who hated the Romans and opposed the taxes. If Jesus comes up as this charismatic leader, we're going to kill him. So they're going to offload this to either the Romans or the Zealots and still either way end up without a Jesus. That's their goal. The Sadducees are kind of doing the same thing, but now they just want to discredit him. They, they don't appear to be as concerned with trying to get him killed. Maybe they are, but their, their primary thing here is if we can make him look foolish... He loses his following and everything goes back to normal. That's what they want. We see a lot of that today in academia. We want to make anything that has to do with the faith, that has to do with trusting God more than trusting the books that I've been taught to read from, that's foolish. Anybody who thinks what you think is foolish. Anybody who believes in biblical, traditional Christian morality, that's foolish. We as a people evolve, therefore the Word of God evolves. And if not, then it just doesn't matter because God couldn't possibly say that. Why? Because we don't understand it. That's the same kind of position they're coming from. So, as we see this, <clears throat> we see our core reality is that embracing real life in Christ requires seeing life from God's perspective. Embracing real life in Christ requires seeing life from God's perspective. These religious leaders, not only the Sadducees, here in this passage, specifically them, but all of these religious leaders, these resistors, those who don't want to submit to Christ, just like unbelievers today, could not embrace the life Jesus offered. They weren't able to. Because embracing real life in Christ requires seeing life from God's perspective. And they were unwilling to see things differently than through their own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He'll straighten your paths. But that's not the approach that the unbelieving mind and heart has. And as a side note, I want to tell you, that's also... We, you and I, every single one of us, started out that way. Incapable of seeing life from God's perspective. Incapable of repentance. Until the Spirit of God quickens us, moves us, and says, Hey, I'm going to open this one's eyes. And you were given the ability to see what those around you could not see. Lest you start to think you're better than anybody else. You're not. Neither am I. We are all dead in our sins. We're all blind to the truth until God opens our eyes. Embracing real life in Christ requires seeing life from God's perspective. Well, just like for them, as you and I walk through this, if we're going to see life from God's perspective, seeing life from His perspective involves rethinking the way I look at things. Seeing life from God's perspective involves rethinking the way I look at things. So the Sadducees are coming in and they're giving a, a, a particular trap question, seeing things from only their point of view. 
The people who are following are only able to see things from their point of view. The Pharisees are only able to see things from their point of view. This is, <clears throat> that seemed really hot. Uh, this is why when we see debates take place in our world today, people always seem to think the other side is absolutely ludicrous, whatever position you take. Because I can only see from my point of view. Therefore, if you're a conservative, then all liberals are nuts. If you're a liberal, all conservatives are nuts. Everybody that isn't me is nuts. I guess we're all nuts. But the reality of it is, th there is some truth in every lie. There is some fact in all confusion. As we wrestle through the things of life, we need to broaden our perspective. We need to be able to see through the other person's eyes if we're going to be able to identify with what they're going through, right? The old Indian adage, walk a mile in their moccasins. But bigger than that, more importantly than that, we need to understand reality from God's point of view. Why? Because God's point of view is the reality. Anything that doesn't align with God's perspective simply isn't real. It isn't what it seems to be. It's a fiction that has been created in our minds. A matrix, so to speak. We need to be able to see life from God's perspective. And if we're going to do that, we've got to change our lens. We've got to change our, our point of view, our own way of looking at things. First off, and we're going to see a few points here. There are four specific areas that these Sadducees deal with here. And I wanted to change the order around just because I know that I'm going to end up spending more time than I want to on a couple of these spots because I get excited. Uh, but I elected to stay with this order to match the scripture and what it says there. <clears throat> First, seeing life from God's perspective involves rethinking the way I look at things. And in this particular case, in this debate or this conversation with the Sadducees, it involves rethinking marriage. Rethinking marriage. Notice as they are attacking this, they present this picture of how marriage in, this, in what's called the leveret marriage, it comes from the Latin word meaning brother, this rule about substitutionary uh, childbearing, I guess you could call it, or siring, Jesus comes back to them not with an answer related to their ridiculous, preposterous, foolish human question, but as always, he takes what they've made man-centered and he makes it God-centered. In fact, in Matthew and Mark, when they talk about this, in, in recording this, they both record Jesus as saying, aren't you in error for this reason? You don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. That's especially powerful for the Sadducees because they've stripped the power of God out of what scriptures they kept and they dismissed the rest. If it doesn't fit, throw it out. Your error comes because you don't know God's word and you don't know God's power. Jesus replied in verse 34, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. That statement by itself puts marriage in a different perspective. When he throws in that phrase, this age, he is now shifting this. They're trying to trap him by comparing marriage now to what happens in eternity. 
in the next life, in the age to come. Jesus says, in this age, in other words, there's another age. There's something else. But now, in what you know and what you understand and what you experience, people get married, people are given in marriage, and that's a good thing, right? That's, we've seen that all the way from Genesis. Marriage is there. People are, marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It's not the same. It's different. And they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. Okay, so if we're rethinking marriage, understand this. Debates about the nature of marriage are not new. The reason is that it's a spiritual matter. When we're talking about marriage, this is not just what you want, what makes you happy, what the state decides. This is a sacred, spiritual matter. And these debates about what marriage is and isn't and how it works are not new. We're seeing that taking place here. It's a sacred gift in which God reveals something of himself to humanity. Marriage isn't primarily about two people falling in love and making each other happy. Although we love to make movies and songs about it, and I'm married, I'm in love, and I'm happy. But that's not the point. That's not the primary purpose of marriage. Both then and now, we need to rethink marriage to align ourselves with reality. Marriage, at its root, has always been from Genesis, when God created male and female, and He created them to procreate, and He commanded them to go and be fruitful and multiply, all of what God did in developing this basic social unit of family, marriage, sexuality, family, is all part and parcel of one picture, God's illustration of His relationship to His people. It's always been. I would take it a step further and to say it goes into all of society. When God established Israel, all through the history of Israel, all through the Old Testament, into, even into today, we see that Israel is a picture of God's relationship to His people. If you need more evidence of that, just look at how He deals with Israel through the prophets. The book of Hosea is a perfect example. He uses the marriage between Hosea and his unfaithful wife as a picture of how God handles unfaithful Israel. The New Testament refers back to those same things. God pictures himself as a husband and his people as his bride. That was the case from the beginning. So if God is the husband and, and we see uh, I won't have you turn to all of these for the sake of time, but you've got a number of passages that are listed for you there um, in Isaiah 54, the book of Hosea and Jeremiah, uh, and, and really a, a, a very profound and detailed picture in Ezekiel. God calls himself a husband, and he calls his people his bride or his wife. And he takes Israel under his wing. The, the picture that he gives in, in Ezekiel is of an orphaned child that he gives life to. And he cares for her when nobody else cared for her. And she comes to maturity and is of a marrying age. 
And rather than taking advantage of her like everyone else has, he covers her with his skirts. He covers her with his robe. In other words, he offers protection and a covenant relationship. Very specific words. A covenant he makes with her. And she becomes his. God is Israel's husband. She is his wife. This entire picture was to give the people the opportunity to see the nature and character of God. We can see God's divine qualities. We can see His power. We can see His his beauty in the created world around us. What we can't see is His character. And God reveals in marriage a glimpse of that. He reveals in Israel a glimpse of that later. Now, He reveals in His church a glimpse of that. And he describes it in his word so that we can see it clearly. But it's really important for us to recognize that with that purpose, illustrating God's relationship to his people, that illustration is no longer needed when we see him face to face. Right now, no one sees God because God is spirit. So God gives flesh to the picture of that relationship in the concept of marriage, in the state, in the society, in the church, He gives this picture because we can't see Him. But when we can see Him, when we're with Him face to face, the Word tells us we'll be like Him. There will be a perfect intimacy. We will be fully known and we will fully know Him. And we won't need these illustrations any longer. What's more, it's no longer needed because the intimacies that we are wired for are only hinted at in this world. If you have a fantastic marriage, some of you do, some of you don't. If you have a fantastic marriage, you know that there is nothing better. There is no human relationship that even comes close to that intimacy, that joy that excitement you find in one another. And then the overflowing exuberance of that relationship produces children, which is not a a competition for that love. It's an extension of it. It's the expression of it. There's nothing like it. But you also know, if you've not had that, that a relationship gone wrong, intimacy betrayed, Intimacy misused and abused is the worst loneliness you can ever have. That's a deeper, more profound loneliness than being alone. That type of rejection goes far beyond what we can picture in any other way. And it gives us, <laughs> it gives us an illustration of what we have done to our Father, our Creator, our Lord, our husband, our unfaithfulness to God, while He has done nothing but give and love, is a painful void. It changes the way we see the rest of the world. It changes the way we view reality. Hopefully it can also give you grace toward others 
when we begin to discover that I am that unfaithful bride. I am the harlot married to the saint. We need to rethink marriage. One of the reasons we have such difficulties with it in our world is we don't understand its purpose. We don't understand its meaning. Understand also that in the age to come, there is no more death. Therefore, there's no need for procreation. There's no ending. There's no need to populate because we're already in the fullness of time. And our intimacy with others is just a foretaste of heaven. And that intimacy is supplanted and surpassed. It's taken over by a perfected and direct intimacy with God. We'll have no need for marriage. It won't even be on our agenda. Here in this world, we need it. Seeing life from God's perspective involves rethinking the way I look at marriage, but it also involves rethinking the way I look at eternity. Rethinking eternity. Notice they're, they're trying to trip him up in dealing with eternity, in dealing with the next life, with the resurrection. And they are completely rejecting supernatural. They don't, reject, they, they don't accept the idea of an afterlife. These are the religious leaders. We're seeing that today. There's a, uh, the, the Church of Canada, the official state church of Canada, has been dealing with the, for the last uh, year or so with a big issue, and they elected not to excommunicate, because we don't do that anymore, I guess, um, a, a prominent pastor who is now a self, self-avowed atheist. He's an atheist as a pastor of the church. Don't believe in God, and yet still a religious leader. We have to recognize that there's a difference between perception and reality. As we rethink eternity, this is really the Sadducees' issue here. They reject the spiritual and the supernatural, so they endeavor to make it seem ridiculous with what they think is a conundrum. Jesus shifts their focus to the issue. The life to come is beyond our current understanding. We need to rethink eternity. I remember a teacher posing a question to me once in class. Super profound question. If God can do anything... Stop me if you've heard this one. Can he make a rock so big he can't move it? So profound. See, as humans, we like to come up with these conundrums that are limited to our understanding that reject the reality of who God is. Ultimately, the question is, can God not be God? Well, of course God can't not be God. That's a logical fallacy. If God were to not be God, then he's not God, so he can't be God not being God. The whole thing is a circular silliness. So for God to do something as foolish as making a rock he couldn't do, he couldn't move, or for God to do something that is contrary to the logic, the rational thought of the reality that he has already built into creation because he made reason, then he wouldn't be God. Therefore, the entire question is stupid. And that's what we see here. Well, if God made a law about how this is going to work, then there must either not be resurrection or God doesn't know what he's doing. Or, here's a thought, you're human and limited. God is not. We need to rethink eternity. Notice, 
as we see this. Uh, turn to Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3. Where's Daniel? If you go to the Psalms in the middle of your Bible and start turning to the right, you get past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. These are the, the larger books of, among the prophets. There's so much more in Daniel than what we realize. We think of the lion's den, right? We maybe think of the, the four Hebrew children or the three Hebrew children in the, in the fiery furnace. If we're really pushing. But there's so much more. The book of Daniel unlocks secrets of eternity, if I can use that phrase without sounding overly weird and, and infomercial-ish. Daniel chapter 12, check this out, verses 1 through 3. Daniel is prophesying about what will come at the end of time. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, Israel, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as, as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is a very clear prophecy of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Now, the Sadducees reject this, and they actually don't regard the book of Daniel as Scripture, because they're going to stick with, with the first five, and really only with the parts they like. But this is the issue. The Pharisees, the people in general, who trust the Scriptures, believe that at the end there will be a resurrection of the living and the dead, or the, a resurrection of the dead, both the good and the wicked, and they will face judgment. We'll see this in just a moment in a couple of New Testament passages. So the question becomes for all of us, as we rethink eternity, have we ever actually considered what the Bible says about it? We have lots of ideas about eternity, but most of them come from books of fiction, TV shows and movies, what's been passed on to us in our particular religious heritage. But if we don't actually see what the Bible says about it, then we're no different than the Sadducees. We get to do what we want regardless of what God says. Daniel is saying, at the end of time, there will come a time when all of the dead will be raised up. God's people will be delivered, His promises will be kept, and the dead will rise. They don't want to deal with that. Uh, jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Most of us are a little more familiar with the New Testament. You're looking at about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. Just past Romans, you find the book of 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we have probably the most extensive text in Scripture on the resurrection. There are lots of references to it, lots of allusions to it. 
some uh, detailed things, but nothing more detailed really than what we see Paul presenting here in 1 Corinthians 15. There's much more for us to read, but I'm going to start with verse, oh goodness. Um, let's, let's just look at verses 35 and following. You can read the rest for your homework, starting with verse 12. But we're going to start with 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And Paul writes, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. When you sow, you do not just plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed, He gives its own body. The Bible likes to use farming references a lot. So picture in your garden, you plant a seed, and then your tomato plant grows up, right? And you expect to get tomatoes from that plant, but you know that that tomato plant doesn't look anything like the seed, that's logical, right? Nod your head for me if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I just want to make sure we're all awake. Just checking up. Okay, so when you, when you plant that seed, it doesn't look like that. Why? Because the life of the seed is not like the life of the plant. It's an entirely different thing. They are connected, and yet they are entirely different. You and I, in this seed body that we have now, are not like we will be in that day. In eternity, in the age to come, as Jesus calls it here, it's different. The rules have changed. Who we are is different. We continue. <clears throat> Boy, I get all excited and then I lose my place. Let's look at 38. God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed He gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. Fish another rudimentary science is not not looking at trying to to break things down as we would know it now but we recognize this is why vegetarians won't eat meat beef but they'll eat fish not vegans but a vegetarian will will eat fish even though it's still meat but it's a different kind of meat somehow i i don't understand those things i'm a carnivore but anyway <clears throat> but there's an understanding that different kinds of flesh are different we're not like birds and fish Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and stars differ from star in, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, this body, and, and I can tell you, the older I get, the more perishable I, I recognize it to be. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It was a lot harder to get out of, out of the chair today than it was 20 years ago. Things break down. Entropy is present in our world. And it's present in this body that I walk around in. Yours too. Not so in the age to come. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. 43, it's sown in dishonor. There is no dignity in death. We die and we get dumped in a hole. All of us. Or cremation is popular today. We get burned up, thrown in the dirt, thrown in the lake. We can call it whatever we want. There is no dignity in death. It is raised in glory. 
It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about resurrection. I thought we were talking about bodies coming up out of graves. Isn't that what we mean by resurrection? Yes, but things are different now, right? The seed is planted, and the seed grows in a new way. I declare to you, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, we won't all die, but we will all be changed, whether we die or we live. In a, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, your body died able to die, it died perishable, it will be raised no longer able to die and imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal, that which is able to die, with immortality, that which is not. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So much more, so much more to see. I'll refer you to the other passages that are listed in your program. But if we go back to Luke 20, <clears throat> excuse me, we see that as they're talking about this, Jesus responds by saying that uh, those, verse 35, those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. We don't need that anymore. And they can no longer die. They're imperishable, for they are like the angels. Notice, they don't, it doesn't say that we are angels. We're not. People don't die and become angels. Angels are a separate created order, but we are like the angels. In this particular um, passage in an older rendering perhaps if you have a King James version it refers to it as equal to the angels we are peers we're on the same level we're on the same standing as the angels in that age we're not right now we can't do those things understand that we will never ever be angels but we'll be like the angels <clears throat> They can no longer die. They are God's children, since they're the children of the resurrection. In John 1.12, John writes that as many as receive Christ, those are the ones who get the right to become the children of God. So how do we become worthy of the resurrection? By being children of God. How do we become worthy of being children of God? You can't. But Jesus already is, and His 
imputed righteousness, the righteousness that he gives to you, that he puts on to you when you receive him because of his death and resurrection in your place, he absorbs, he takes your sin and he makes you God's righteousness. Therefore, while you could never earn the resurrection life, you can receive it from the only one who ever did. They can no longer die. They're like the angels. They're God's children since they're children of the resurrection. Then he goes on to say, in the account of the burning bush, excuse me, in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. They And this is important, right? Because remember, they only accept the books of Moses, the five books of the Torah. So Jesus doesn't argue from the prophets. He goes back. He doesn't quote Daniel. They wouldn't accept it. He goes back to Moses. Oh, we only follow Moses. Okay. Well, Moses recognizes this. What does he say in the account of the burning bush? Even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then our memory verse for today, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to Him all are alive. Notice God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I wasn't their God while they were living. I am their God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's referring to the future age, to the resurrection Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. Well, of course not. You lose every time you try. So they're like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. But then Jesus asks them a question. Because if we're going to embrace real life in Christ, we have to see things from God's perspective, which requires rethinking Christ. Rethinking marriage, rethinking eternity, but rethinking Christ, rethinking the Messiah. If we want to embrace the life that God is offering us here, we need a new understanding of who Messiah is. This was one of the problems they're running into. We just saw in in a recent passage that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, they were hailing him as king. They recognize him as Messiah. The problem is their expectation of Messiah is limited. Their scope is small. God's is huge. And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. Since we're on this whole perception versus reality thing, Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, he is. That's the prophecy. But Jesus is pushing them to think. That's a really important thing. Jesus pushes us to think. We don't struggle with overthinking. We struggle with wrong thinking. We need to think deeply. We need to dig. We need to poke and prod and wrestle with things. God named Jacob Israel. And it wasn't until Jacob wrestled with God that he became God's. Before that, he was the deceiver. He was the guy who was out trying to get his own stuff. To work by his own power, by his own strength to get ahead as he understood how to get ahead. Hustle and grind, that was Jacob. Do unto them before they do unto you, that was Jacob. Until he wrestles with God. We have to wrestle with God. We have to rethink who we've expected Messiah to be, who we've heard about, and begin to understand who he really is. 
Notice his question. Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, Gary read this for us earlier in, in uh, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool for your feet. And I, I'm just wondering what Jesus looked like as he asked this question. What was his facial expression? I, I don't know. I just, in my imagination, I'm trying to picture it. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And he just lets it hang. This is a great way of dealing with this. He just lets it hang. Think. Rethink your understanding of who Messiah is. It can't be just a human leader. The anointed one can't be just another warrior king to come and throw off the Romans. Haven't we been through this before? There's more. David says this is an eternal king. David calls him Lord, so he can't just be who you think he is. In Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of David, uh, of Jesus, going back to David. And yet it ends with Jesus being born of a virgin. And God sends an angel to tell Joseph, your wife's going to be with child. Now we just traced Joseph's genealogy. You ain't going to be the daddy. You're going to be the guy that raises this child, but she will be conceiving with the Holy Spirit. Son of God, son of man. This is a powerful reality for us to recognize. Turn, if you would, back, since we're in Luke, turn back to Luke chapter 4. I made one turn, I ended up in Matthew. How about that? Go back to Luke chapter 4. We see another genealogy. Notice how it's couched. Jesus is calling them to rethink Christ. Maybe we need to as well. I said four, I meant three. It's on the same page. I see a four, it's a three. Yeah, math. Anyhow. Chapter three, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized by John, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Let this sink in for a moment. While he's being baptized... Heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Whether it was a dove or just had the appearance of... Uh, who knows? But the Holy Spirit descends in a visible form. Unusual. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then it goes on to give a genealogy. Jesus himself was about 30 years old, and when he, began, when he began his ministry, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And he gives all the begats, all the son of. But Jesus didn't come from Joseph. He is of David's line. He's the son of David. Mary also happens to be of David's line. So both biologically and legally, 
Jesus is accounted as the son of David, keeping the covenant that God made with David, that one of his offspring would always rule over Jerusalem. But in this very passage, we see that God the Father says, this is my son. Not David's son, my son. Jesus is different than they expected. <clears throat> in John 1, go ahead and turn there to the, to the right of Luke. In John 1, John, who was the best friend of Jesus during his earthly ministry, knew him better than anyone could. Interestingly, he's the one who focuses most on the divine nature of Christ. I got a lot of friends that I would not see divine nature in. You know, the better you know somebody, the more you know they're not God, right? I know all of you, and I can say with 100% certainty, you are not God. And if you know me for three minutes, you know I am not God. John spent every waking moment with Jesus, reclined against him at table, traveled around with him 24 hours a day John says about Jesus the Christ the Messiah in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life that life was the light of all mankind the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible for us, he is the fullness of that, he is the complete declaration in human form of everything that God is. Jesus says, I want you to rethink what you thought about Messiah. You're stuck in a temporal mode. And I, I fear that we are too often stuck in a temporal mode. We think that faith in Christ, Christianity, religion, is supposed to make our lives better to give us our best life now, to fix the injustices of the world, to feed the poor, to heal the leper, to right the wrongs of society, put all the bad guys away, and let all the superheroes win. That's not it at all. Not that those things aren't valid and good, but they are limited. Jesus challenges them as he challenges us today 
to raise our expectations. If in this life we get everything right and we miss the next, what gain is that? What good does it do for a man to gain the whole world? Lose his own soul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the passage we read from earlier, that if we have hope in Christ only for this life, if there is no resurrection, if there is no life after death, if we don't get to be with Him face to face, then we are to be pitied above all people. Because we've missed everything. It's either all or nothing. We're either rising with Him to live for eternity in bliss with the Father, or all is hopeless and lost. So if you're you're still trying to fix all the stuff in this life, if you're trying to find that perfect form of government, if you're trying to take care of every inequality and fix all those things which we should work for. But understand as we do it, it's just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. The ship's still going down. Now, In the meantime, we need to take care of the needs of people because that's what the love of Christ and compassion does. We need to seek equality. But no amount of earthly justice will settle the issue of eternal justice. Only Christ does that. Lastly, and we've been talking about this issue quite a bit, so I'm going to try to be as short as I can. It involves rethinking marriage, rethinking eternity, rethinking Christ, and he challenges them on rethinking authority. Notice what he says as as he deals with the people here. He has them take a look at who Messiah really is and goes immediately into this warning. Verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, okay, so make sure you're catching that, He's turning to his folks to explain this to them. And he's doing it consciously, deliberately, while everybody is listening. The Sadducees, the onlookers, everybody's there. The message is for everybody. It's spoken to his disciples. Beware of the teachers of the law. Well, that ain't good. Just right out of the gate. These are the people that he's standing there with. These are the people who are in charge. If we see the other gospel accounts, he actually says in Matthew, these are the people in charge and you need to submit to them. But beware. You just talked about that last week, right? Submitting to authority. You need to submit to them, but beware. Don't be like them. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. These are the people who look the part. These are the people who have the credentials. These are the people in positions of authority. When they devour widows' houses for a show, make lengthy prayers, these men will be punished most severely. Understand, Jesus isn't criticizing lengthy prayers. John 17 is one of the greatest prayers ever. I don't know, is there a way to judge that? I don't know. But as Jesus is making his high priestly prayer, it's a whole chapter. He's got a long prayer, and that's just part of it. He's already been praying. We see him go to the garden and pray so long that his his disciples fall asleep. This isn't about the length of your prayers. It's about the show of your prayers. 
Are you talking to God? Are you trying to impress somebody else? What Jesus is telling them here in Rethinking Authority is that authority isn't just what it looks like. You don't have authority just because you have the right credentials or you look the part or you have a position. And more than that, even when you have those things, you're out of step with reality when you're caught up in them. He tells James and John as they so arrogantly get to this silly part, Lord, we want you to do us a favor. We want, to, we want you to let us sit at your right and left hand when we get to heaven. When your kingdom comes, put us... There's ten other guys here in the group, right? Don't you think they're getting a little ticked off? What, 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 what did he just say? Did he just ask Jesus if they could be in charge, if they could be in the most prominent seats? The nerve! Jesus said, that's not for me to grant. But understand how this works. The authorities of this world, they love to lord their authority over people. The boss loves to make sure you know that they're the boss. The president likes to make sure you know who the president is. And it doesn't matter what his last name is. That's how presidents work. The king likes to rule as king. This is incidentally why the founding fathers of the United States recognized the, the corrupt nature of humanity and put checks and balances in place. But that's another time for us to talk about. The reality of authority in Christ is that it's given to us to serve. Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the king over all kings. And we've been over this so many times here recently that, that I feel like I'm telling you stuff that you already have down. But notice that that same king of all kings humbled himself. Turn to Philippians 2. Jesus had told James and John that, look, you can't be like them. The people of this world like to lord their authority over people. That's not how it is with us. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to make yourself least. You need to serve. Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, says this. In your relationships with one another... This is Philippians 2, verse 5 and following. In your relationships to one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In the kingdom, this is how authority is wielded. This is the way of Christ. Jesus will rule. And when that day comes, he will rule absolutely with an iron scepter. He doesn't need to beat his chest about it because he is. Here and now, you and I need to recognize what it means 
to look like Christ as ambassadors in this world. And it requires humility, servanthood, emptying ourselves. Which brings us to the last point. If I'm going to see life from God's perspective, it involves rethinking the way I look at marriage, rethinking eternity, rethinking Christ, rethinking authority. But if I'm going to act on it, it involves rethinking my life. I need to reevaluate me. All of this stuff that we're studying that we see in the past is in the past. All of the things that we see happening here between Jesus and the Sadducees and all of the things that are leading up to his crucifixion that we'll see in a few more chapters, that's then. What do we do about it now? If embracing real life in Christ requires seeing life from God's perspective, then the logical response for each of us is to reevaluate our lives from God's point of view. I need to look at things God's way. I need to look at how I look at things. In order to embrace real life in Christ, I need to realize that God is not some religious construct relegated to history and primitive people of the past. I need to recognize that my understanding of reality is limited. His is not. It's experiencing a victorious life begins with actually having life. This is what Jesus offers to those who will receive it. We read in John 1, 12, that as many as received Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. If we're going to embrace this life that He offers, we need to recognize what He says in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes unto the Father but by Me. There is no other way. It's only Jesus. In Christ alone do we find that life. Because He who knew no sin became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God. And we're saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God, the opposite of what we deserve, that we take hold of by faith, by trusting in Him, so that this faith, <laughs> that's not even from us, that's from God, so that there's no room for boasting. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's more holy and more spiritual. So, I, oh, look at me, I chose Jesus, I'm so good. It's grace. Paul wrote to Titus, it's not because of any righteous things that you and I have done that he saved us, but according to his mercy. God created us for a relationship that we can't have because sin has caused a permanent, irrevocable separation. But Jesus paid the price for that sin, and we, if we will trust in Him alone, have eternal life. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate that with the ancient ceremony known as the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving, communion because we share it together, the Lord's Supper because He shared it with His disciples before His crucifixion, or as we refer to it here, the remembrance celebration. Because he said, as often as you celebrate this, do it in remembrance of me. When we do this, 
We are recognizing that we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. But Christ died for our sins so that we in Him can die to our sins. That's the message. That's the reality. That's understanding life from God's perspective. As we close today, come to Him. If you haven't been on your face before the cross, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I need you, and I can't do it myself. Save me. And trust in Christ to be everything. Come to Him. If you have, then continue in Him. Just as you receive Christ, so live in Him. Walk by that grace. See life from God's perspective and experience real victorious life in Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your revealed Word. We thank You for the understanding that Jesus gave us even, even when He was facing injustice Himself, when He was being set up, He still taught so that we could see reality. Lord, help us to adjust the way we think, to rethink the way we look at things, to align ourselves with reality, to align our thinking with truth so that our feelings and our behaviors would come into line with that reality. And Father, help us to see Jesus for who He really is. To see the beauty of You revealed in Your Son. Lord, fill us with an exuberant joy and a hunger for more of You. Father, give us a passion to find just, just a little more Jesus in every moment to chase after your word so we can know you better. <laughs> Lord, strip away from us everything that is of us. Let all of those things fall away. As we surrender ourselves to you and fall upon the cross to find your mercy, remind us of the price that was paid for our freedom, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, in Christ alone. Amen.